Hello. Welcome to another episode of Piecing the Parsha Together. This week's episode is going to be Luschus for Shlema Pinchas Dov Ben Elisheva. This week's Parsha, from a sense of trying to put all of the <clears throat> distinct uh, partios, little partios of the Parsha together is relatively easy. There's only one. The entire Parsha is one long uh, Parsha. There are no breaks. There's no psuchas, open lines, stumas, closed lines. Um, the Balaturim comments on this. <clears throat> this Parsha is Tesuma, he says. Why? It says that Yaakov is Yotza Beseser. He goes out in hiding Uvarach Behechave. He hides. Runs away in concealment. Okay. Colloquially, I believe this parsha is also referred to as the parsha of Gaulus. It's not as clear from the comment of the Balaturim, but there is a comment from the Mincha Shai, quoting some very quoting a couple different uh, sources that I'm not familiar with. It says a safer Tage. That uh, maybe this is there's a similarity between Vayetze and Parshas Vayechi in terms of the the stuma aspect. And he points out that it's not true uh, in Vayechi. There is no break of any kind. It's just a regular space between the end of Parshas Vayigash and the beginning of Parshas Vayechi. And in Parshas Vayetze, there is a a a standard break, at least a stuma. Uh, so if there is a comparison. Between those two partios, the reason why Vayechi has no separation at all is because it's one of the reasons offered by Rashi is that B'nai Israel's eyes became closed with the Gaulists. Perhaps there is an idea of a closed Parsha referring to Gaulists. And what I would like to try to explore here is the exact Gaulist nature of Parsha's Vayetze. Obviously, Yaakov is on the run, and obviously Yaakov spends the Parsha outside of Eretz Yisrael. But perhaps there's a bit more to it than that. Vayishlach is also a good chunk of Vayishlach is also Yaakov outside of Eretz Yisrael. And perhaps in Vayishlach there are more uh, uh, trials, tribulations that um, Yaakov has to deal with, which we'll talk about next week. So let's see if we can explain more as to how this week's Parsha may represent that, at least in some aspect. So Rabbi David Foreman and his partial companion on Sefer Bereshis focuses on when Yaakov meets Rachel at the well for the first time. Says he cries. And the question is, why? Vayisa es Perik Chavtes Pasuk The Rashi on this Pasuk says two reasons. Reason number one, Lefisha Tzafa Berach HaKodesh Yaakov saw with divine insight, She'ena Nichnesa Simo L'Kfura, they won't be buried together. Okay. Davar Acher, a second thing, Lefisha Ba V'yadayim Rekanios, he came empty-handed, unlike Eliezer who came loaded with all of Avraham's wealth. He doesn't have anything. Why? Rashi continues, Lefisha Radaf Elifaz ben Esav, Elifaz the son of Esav, ran after Yaakov, the mitzvah's aviv, on his father's command, 
Achrav Lahargo after him to kill him. Vihisigo, and he overtook Yaakov Eliphaz did. Since Eliphaz grew up in Yitzchak's lap, he was Mashach Yadav, he let his hands go. But then Eliphaz says to Yaakov, I'm alone, what am I? He says, My ass, let's see, what am I going to do with my father's command? I'm alone, Yaakov. Yaakov said to him, Tol Mashbiyodi, take what's in my hands. So maybe Yaakov had possessions with him, some sort of monetary uh, value. And then Yaakov says, kames. A poor person is considered dead. So we have two reasons why Yaakov cries upon meeting Rachel, and they don't seem, according to Rabbi Foreman, there's not a, an obvious connection. What does burial have to do with being poor? So for this, Rabbi Foreman continues an idea that he began in the previous Parsha as to the fallout of Yaakov taking Esav's bracha. And he makes the specific comment that Hashem doesn't seem to respond maybe one way or the other about Yaakov's actions. And Rabbi Foreman will develop in this week's Parsha that in fact these two aspects that Yaakov is crying about are actually one and the same that there's a loss of something precious here, right? A loss, in this case, it's it's the loss of Racha. So he says that, obviously, why is Eliphaz pursuing Yaakov? Is because Esav is mad at the fact that Yaakov has taken his brachas. And what happens as a result of that? Yaakov becomes impoverished. Perhaps Yaakov did not expect that to be a tremendous problem, but when he encounters Lavan, Lavan is not going to give him anything for free, so he has to work for seven years in order to be able to marry Rachel. And then, on his wedding night, Lavan again deceives Yaakov, and he switches Leah with Rachel. And now, there is going to be um, strife between them. And that will cause that... Uh, Yaakov and Esa, Yaakov and Rachel are not actually very next to each other. And uh, Reformer even points out when Yaakov confronts Lavan um, about the fact that he switched the daughters, that. Um, he says, Lo yasa came bimkomenu. This is what Lavan says. We don't do this in our place. We don't give the younger before the older. So Lavan might be needling Yaakov slightly by saying, maybe that's how we, how you did it. Maybe you put yourself, the younger brother, ahead of the older brother. But that's not how we're going to do it here. So it's sort of, you know, a certain just, just justice that Yaakov can't really uh, respond to. Even though he has been tricked, there's no question. And then, if you, he says, take it out a, a drop further. The uh, pasuk in last week's parsha, when Asa finds out he's been. He's been uh, he, he, he's been deceived. He lost the bracha. It says, "V'yitzak to'aka gedola umara." He cried a bitter cry, big cry. 
And the Reformant says, look at the similarities between this and um, Miguel's Esther. Vayizak says Mordechai when he finds out that um, there's been a decree that killed the Jews. Vayizak Gadola Umara. He cries a bitter cry, a big cry. And uh, there's a Medrash that says that this is in, in repayment that Yaakov causes Asaph to cry. And uh, therefore, uh, one of Esau's descendants, of Malik, who is a descendant specifically of Eliphaz, will cause Mordechai to cry. It's Medrash Bracious Rabbah, uh, 67.4. It's, you know, it's a difficult thing to say that uh, you know, Yaakov um, perhaps was justified to take the brachas. He had to take the brachas, but maybe there was a, a bit of uh, satisfaction in what he uh, did. And that is why you will have this play out that there will be, you caused, you caused Asaph to cry, you took satisfaction in Asaph crying, therefore one of your ancestors, one of your descendants, a thousand years later, will cry as a result of what one of Asaph's ancestors does. So Rabbi Foreman is saying that you said either Eliphaz running after him is part of this, the causing Asaph to cry, and Eliphaz will not kill Yaakov, but he will say, okay, make me the next best thing to be, make me consider dead, I'll be poor. Right, and, and Rabbi Foreman says, "You deceived. I deceived my father. Yaakov could be saying, so you can deceive your father, but it doesn't quite work out because Yaakov then becomes the the recipient of deception in the exact way that he is deceived. Question of which child of Lavans he gets, and he's Rabbi Foreman will say this even falls out later in in Jewish history that the you know a descendant of Eliphaz's will cause um, a descendant of Yaakov's to cry." And um, that's only the first portion of the Parsha. Uh, what about the rest of the Parsha? It actually has to do with this idea of Yaakov and um, Rachel not being buried together. So for that, Rabbi Zweig, in his Sefer, the infinity of Torah, on a later Pasuk in the Parsha, when Ruvain goes and collects the Dudayim, which is supposed to have some sort of fertility power. And he brings them back to his mother, Leah. Rachel sees them. She says, give me the Dudayim. And, and Leah says, it's enough. You've taken my husband. Now you're going to take the Dudayim from me as well. She says, fine. She says, Yaakov can stay with you tonight. It was going to be my night for him to be with me, but he can go to your tent instead. And Rashi on this Pasuk says that she, uh, Rachel, makes light of her time, uh, her ability to be with um, Yaakov, they won't be buried together. But Rabbi Zweig points out that there's later it says that the fact that Rachel is buried on the road is so that she can go cry for B'nai Israel when they are being exiled. So she seemingly has to be buried there. So Rabbi Zweig will offer that it's possible that she could have been able to even do that if she had been buried in Maras Machpelah. But rather, he says that the the issue here is that obviously Rachel desperately wants to have a child. And it's understandable to have a child, to have to have one of the Shvatim. But her desire to have a child um, may go out outside of just the idea of having the Shvatim. He says... 
that Rachel was treating her opportunity for intimacy with Yaakov as a commodity, something she could sell to lay unilaterally and not as an expression of their connection and oneness. Although her actions were motivated by her desire to have children with Yaakov, her methods belittled their relationship and were the cause of their incomplete union. And as Wang says in a few places in this safer that the, even the idea of a husband and wife being buried together shows that their union lasts for eternity. But he says that there's a certain, a certain lack of perfect union between uh, Rachel and Yaakov, and that is what ultimately will cause Rachel and Yaakov not to be buried together. But again, what's the source of this lack of unity? It's a competition of, of who's going to have the children. And Leah has so many children. She has half of the Shvatim, and Rachel does, only ends up with two, and she wants to have the children. And she even says that it, it's, it's sort of a, 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 a bringing in of her disgrace that she didn't have any children. And, and everybody's why it continues. Uh, the, uh, once Rachel's children were the product of her desire for offspring, it automatically placed them in a relationship of rivalry with the children of Yaakov's other wives. The competition and discord between the brothers resulted from the fact that they were not born out of an effort to perfect the marriage relationship, but rather because Rachel felt a deep desire to have children of her own. But the sibling rivalry that occurs among the Shvatim and will manifest itself in a few parshas later will ultimately cause the brothers to sell Yosef and they'll go down to Mitzrayim and puts the full Gaulus actually in, in motion. And all of that is a result of Yaakov not being able to marry Rachel because he doesn't have the money, because he gave the money to Eliphaz. Eliphaz was running after him to avenge his father. So there's a straight line. There's the aftermath, the fallout of last week's Parsha, Parsha's Toldos, is that Yaakov will not, is in pursuit, has to leave Yitzchak's house. He will end up losing all of his money, will not be able to marry Rachel the way that he should have, the way that it would have just been Yaakov and Rachel. Again, there could be reasons that he will you know, need to have all the Shvatim, but it could have happened in a different way that he would marry Leah. But the marriage now occurs in disharmony. And the disharmony between Rachel and Leah will cause a disharmony between their children and will cause the Gaulus to happen. So this week's Parsh, Parsh's Vayete, doesn't have any breaks. Could be that it has a relationship to Gaulus. And this week's Parsh may not have the worst of the challenges that Yaakov faces, although perhaps it does. But, but Dina getting abducted and war, uh, Shem and Hamor, perhaps are, are worse. But this week's Parsh is going to be the Parsha that has the more larger Gaulus aspect. Because this is the part where all the seeds get set into motion. There's a disharmony between Yaakov and Esav, and that disharmony leads to a disharmony between Yaakov and his wives, and their and, and Yaakov therefore and his children. And we know that the lack of unity among Klal Yisrael is the reason why the second base of Migdash was destroyed, and is the reason that prevents us from having the base of Migdash built today. So yes, very much this parsha does seem to. To, to be the ultimate Parsha of Gaulus is the ultimate Parsha. We see the seeds of disunity being sowed. So hopefully we can obviously rise above that and, and try to have our priorities the right way and to obviously get along with everybody um, to make up for that. And obviously if we do that, uh, we can, uh, we can have, a, you know, have a redemption. Um, that is, I guess, one of the things we can work on from this week's Parsha. 
Wish everybody a good Shabbos. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next time.